0: Michelle McMurray-Heath assumed the leadership of the biotechnology innovation organization, BIO, as President and CEO on June 1, 2020. A medical doctor and molecular immunologist by training, Dr. McMurray-Heath becomes just the third CEO to lead BIO, the world's largest biotechnology advocacy group, since its founding in 1993. She previously served as the Global Head of Evidence Generation for medical device companies and Vice President of Global External Innovation and Global Leader for Regulatory Sciences. Dr. McMurray-Heath was part of the Obama-Biden transition team, which tapped her to conduct a comprehensive analysis of the National Science Foundation's policies. Dr. McMurray-Heath, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So you've joined Bio at a time of tremendous challenges, both from the standpoint of COVID-19, but also all of the ongoing pressures regarding potential legislation to, quote-unquote, force down pricings of new therapies. What do you see as your role at bio right now addressing these challenges? What are your priorities?
1: I really think that this year has been a year of resetting the compass um, for so many parts of our society, and it's definitely been so for our industry. You know, I think it's been a um, a true north resetting, sure. We're really focusing in on how we are here because of the patients and because of the science. And we always knew this. We've always been working towards this, but it sometimes gets lost in the translation in how we relate to patient groups and clinicians and policymakers. And so we've been reminding people that our industry is about trying to improve human health and trying to improve the opportunities for our communities going forward. And that's why, Most of the people you see working in our companies, including many of our small biotech companies, chose this career. Many of them are promising people who had many different career options, but they've chosen health because they believe in the mission. And that is really why we're here. And I think we've demonstrated that through the year as well by our tremendous response to covid
0: did you know what you were getting into when uh, everything <laughs> happened? Do or? you
1: ever fully know what you're getting into? I mean, particularly <laughs> no, I this year. <laughs> particularly <laughs> this year, I think it caught everyone by surprise. It's it's actually been a very good grounding for for leading the organization as well. I sure. spent the summer Reaching out and having one on ones with our 106 bio board members, um, which in and of itself is an amazing number. That's a
0: huge board.
1: Yeah. It was so inspiring, though, to talk day in and day out with these great committed innovators. And, you know, 95% of our companies are small companies. So hearing their personal journeys and um, their optimism for the future really fueled um, my commitment to what we're trying to work towards every single day.
0: A lot of the pressure that's certainly on your members are sort of a pair of regulatory packages that have been floating around up on the hill. One of them is House of Representatives Bill HR three, which is the International Pricing Bill, and then there's sort of a combo platter of proposals that have come out of the Trump administration. One was the International Pricing Initiative, the IPI, which went through CMS, followed up by the lovely and talented Most Favored Nations, which then came through as an executive order. What do you think the impact will be of the election on these mm.
1: bills? Well, there's the short term and the long term. Sure. Unfortunately, this is a bipartisan commitment um, to date. And so we haven't seen the election really clarify the different sides or, or clarify different camps at all. It seems we're a popular target right. um, for both sides of the aisle. So I think we really need to talk about what impact these kinds of um, approaches would have had on the amazing response we've had to COVID this year. Eight hundred development programs have been started since the beginning of this year by um, by our companies around the globe. One hundred and ninety one COVID vaccines are in development today, and seventy percent of these are by the small companies. So you know, there's often a conversation about taking a to task the larger companies in our ecosystem who who play. A A very key role at manufacturing scale up and distribution around the globe and making sure that all patients can be reached by some of the science. But the small companies would be devastated um, by approaches like these. It would would chase away the investors that are so critical, um, who already lose nine out of the $10 that they place in our industry. So it's already a shaky bet for them. And this would make it just completely nonsensical. And so if we didn't have small companies like Moderna, if we didn't have small companies changing, even like Regeneron, our our emerging companies that have really been key to having hope to end this pandemic sooner rather than later, this would be quite a different world. And it's daunting enough as it is, I can't imagine us going through 2020 without the glimmer of hope of biotechnology.
0: If you look at Pfizer's successful announcement this week, obviously we'd done a webinar with Michael Dalston, the chief science officer on September 30th, where at that point he'd announced that they'd had their second boost of 30,000 patients in their phase three, which was already shocking. You look at this development of a new platform, an mRNA vaccine technology that's only taken seven months Did you think it would be possible to actually come to market in seven months with a new platform and a new technology to address a pandemic?
1: No, I didn't. But interestingly enough, it wasn't because of the science. You know, the science was getting closer and closer with each emerging infection. You know, mRNA is is new in terms of we haven't had a large scourge that has been addressed by an mRNA-based vaccine, but we've been getting closer and closer each time. But I also spent five years at the US Food and Drug Administration, and I have never seen the agency even think about working as fast as they're working this year. Um, They are getting engaged with the companies early. They are um, understanding what's critical to know. Uh, They are giving flexibility in terms of how they can monitor patients in the trials and um, how they adapt their clinical trial design. Um, And they are doing real-time engagement around the reviews and being very clear about what's going to be required, clear and transparent. So all of these new ways of regulating are a huge part of why you're seeing this speed. And it's not come at the cost of safety because these these vaccines and therapeutics that we're hearing about in recent weeks have faced probably more public and scientific scrutiny than almost anything we've seen reach the market in recent decades. So it's not about that. It's about putting immediate needs of patients at the forefront and not stopping until you solve them
0: do you think that these changes can be made more permanent when we were discussing four or five years ago adaptive licensing people said no it wouldn't happen it's not possible you'll reduce the safety too much but now we see you know an actual clinical trial go from soup to nuts in seven and a half months do you think they'll continue in this vein do you think that this is potentially something we can do
1: i don't think patients will stand for anything less FDA has shown that it does not take years to study and then approve a drug. They can do this quickly. And now that we know it's possible, I don't think any of us should be satisfied with
0: anything less. There's an increasing chorus of voices that feel that it's the NIH, not the biopharma industry as a whole, that brings new treatments to market. Part of the Democratic Party platform is a new, improved NIH that will focus on drug discovery What do you feel is the appropriate role of the NIH regarding drug discovery in the value chain? And where do you think the industry should play?
1: So I want to to break this down for a moment because I've had a personal evolution of thought on this over the last 20 years of working in science policy. And I think it's critically important what I've been able to learn along the way. So when I worked for Senator Lieberman in the Hill around the time he was running for president, we had a proposal that we called the American Center for Cures. That's when it back when it was blasphemous to talk about the possibility of curing disease. And now it's a reality in some cases. And it was part of his presidential platform. We put it out there. It, we had legislation that we introduced around it. And eventually many of those ideas became part of NCATS, the National Center for Translational Science. And yet it has not yielded a single drug. Now, the idea was... In many cases, that last mile from NIH or basic science breakthrough to a drug that helps a patient is a barrier too big to bridge for underserved populations, for small disease populations, for huge scientific leaps. And maybe there was a role for the federal government to step in where there weren't private sector incentives in place to get companies to move in those areas. It makes sense on the face of it. You know, NIH is all this great science. Why can't they also just produce great drugs? But what I've been able to learn by working at FDA, by working at Johnson & Johnson, is that there is a whole field of science around developing and commercializing drugs that they do not teach you in your NIH training. And I am an NIH trained scientist. They do not understand, and this is going to sound um, provocative, how to design clinical trials for safety and efficacy, how to think about toxicity, how to think about the regulatory science implications, how to get through um, that negotiating with FDA to make sure that everyone feels good about the safety and efficacy of that new therapeutic. It's not something that they've had to do and they do not do it well. And I don't think it's an accident that the very first vaccine we see through this gauntlet for COVID is one that did not use the NIH clinical trial network and did not take Operation Warp Speed dollars in the early days, even though they have an advanced purchasing agreement for what comes out at the end so very provocative answer there's no guarantee
0: you're gonna have a product to buy either so
1: exactly that's a
0: sunk cost regardless if you make it to market or not
1: exactly exactly Um,
0: it's interesting we're doing work in partnership with you and the bio organization as well as several firms we've looked at twenty four thousand nih grants from the year 2000 and, and what we're finding statistically is when the market is not present in an asset that comes out of NIH funding. And we've seen 8,000 patents that were transferred by the buy dole mechanism. And we've analyzed each of those patents. And, And what we're finding is that when the market does not get behind an asset In other words, the higher the percentage of NIH funding is the total funding pool in the research, the higher the probability the asset will fail. And so what we're seeing is that it really is the private market that statistically is driving the success ratio. And when there's zero... Private money involved in the research. There is zero probability of market entry. Yeah, um, it's. I know it's a sort of backing up your finding, but
1: it is fundamental to the way NIH trained scientists. You know, part of the reason I went into science policy is because when I was in doing my MD PhD, it was the time of the doubling of the NIH budget, and Harold Varmus was on Capitol Hill all the time talking about how the money was being spent. And he was very clear that Congress people had no right to ask scientists how they were spending their money, that we the right science was going to be done by letting scientists follow their curiosity. And in, they called it investigator-driven research. Well, that research had absolutely zero accountability to patients. I remember working in labs and in graduate school and getting calls from patients who'd heard about a promising discovery in the newspaper and they wanted to know when it would be available to them at their doctor's office. And we had no idea because we had absolutely no focus on that goal line. It was not part of our training. And it is only in our companies where we train scientists to start thinking about how you actually serve the patient. What practically and pragmatically do you have to do to make something that a patient can take and that will work for a patient's disease.
0: What we're seeing is an evolution of the way drugs are developed. Companies are working with biotech startups with promising assets that have spun out of universities. And it's sort of an entire ecosystem where increasingly the pharmaceutical company is the development, regulatory, uh, manufacturing, and clinical trial engine to make things feasible. And then it's the biotech companies that are taking the risk. And it's the real discovery at the university front edge, often funded by NIH, that's driving these development assets. And it's been hugely successful. How do we communicate this better, that this is how this stuff actually works now? It's a big change from how, it's not like GE yeah. making light bulbs. How do we get that message out?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's sometimes not even clear to our smaller companies. So when I my first few years at j and I led clinical, regulatory, and then also preclinical for all of our medical device companies. I had a team of 900 people around the globe <laughs> who were responsible with understanding the different regulatory requirements and payment requirements at times in 152 markets. And it would sometimes take us seven years to run the gauntlet for the same product between the first approval and and market entry to the last When I moved over to global external innovation, where we scout for small biotechs and look for partnerships and potential acquisitions, you'd come into those small companies. They had no idea what was laying before them sometimes in terms of the the clinical trials they would have to do and the, the tests they would face and what it would take to distribute and manufacture. And that's as it should be because they're focused on turning that great discovery into something that might work for a patient. And that's a critical step. And I'm so glad they're focused there, but there's this whole other muscle of actually making it to bedside, which is also important um, and its own expertise.
0: Obviously science is leading us to more and more targeted therapies. You know, the orphanization of therapeutics is inevitable in some ways. We see more and more indications with ever more targeted populations and smaller ends do you think we're going to get to places where we're going to see N at one like CRISPR? How is that going to put more challenges on the reality of pricing and reimbursement? Cause we're still going to have these regulatory hurdles. How are we going to deal with that?
1: Well, everyone's going to have to question their, their assumptions um, and think about new ways of, of proving the efficacy of, of following up on the data, um, making sure that you're following patients over time to really see how things turn out And I think you're starting to see some of that flexibility when people are talking about payment models for one-and-done therapies. What's a one-and-done therapy? It's a therapy where you treat someone one time and they're cured. We don't have a regulatory or a payment system set up to handle that. We have a regulatory and a payment system set up for something like a statin that you take every day for 50 years. That's really what we're designed to handle. But when you have the opportunity to touch a patient once and completely change their outcome, it's a different conversation. And so we're starting to have conversations about paying over time um, so that you're not paying for that statin for 50 years. You're maybe you know, paying for a one-time dose, but you pay for it over five years, but it's still altogether less than if you'd paid for that statin for 50 years. And offering money-back guarantees so that you're paying for efficacy That is going to be the type of social contract that we're going to need to discuss more and more going forward so that we continue to incentivize one and done, because that's what patients want. They want to be cured of their disease. They do not want to manage their disease. Um, So we need to adapt and be ahead of that curve.
0: Yeah. And I think the first example of that sort of in the therapeutic area would be Savaldi, the hepatitis C cures, the $1,000 pillar. I remember the Time Magazine cover, which seemed quite egregious, but what no one was looking at was the alternative pathway, the fact that what we had in the box at the moment, the peylated interferon, you know, one in five of those people was going to require a liver transplant in 10 years. There was $250,000 of alternative cost. One in three people had a really pretty severe adverse reaction that caused a whole bunch of expenses in the hospital. Are we doing enough to look at some of these very effective therapies, the new CAR-Ts, things like that, that really are... I don't say they're magic, but they do really fantastic work. Are we doing enough to talk about the benefits of these over the existing treatment pathways and the the actual costs?
1: No, I think, you know, expectations are so low for medicine these days. You know, people really do feel like sometimes the best they can hope for is their symptoms get a little bit better or they have to adapt to a therapy over years and years. So, we do have to talk about the true promise. There's one of our companies that I remember speaking to recently who's trying to come up with a pharmacological alternative uh, to kidney dialysis. And it's potentially one and done or a few and done therapy. And the CEO was telling me how difficult it is because. The majority of kidney dialysis patients are on Medicaid, and Medicaid has all of these mechanisms in place to pay for dialysis and to pay for dialysis centers, but they don't have any way to pay less over time for a pharmaceutical intervention. Right. So that's the kind of Faustian bargain we've made so many times, and it was all done for good reasons. It was done as their Band-Aids been put in place to at least try to cover the current state of care but we need to start focusing on covering the future state of care. And this is the problem with the entire drug pricing debate is we spend so much time focusing on trying to give patients what's available today without realizing that we're slowing down the rate of innovation for what's coming to them tomorrow. And what's coming to them tomorrow, what's behind curtain number two is much, much better than what they have today.
0: Obviously the differential in price between the US and Europe isn't helping, How are your conversations on the Hill going now? I mean, obviously, you can't do them face-to-face, but is there an acceptance that the U.S. is world-leading? I mean, we know for a fact that 70% of mature biotech assets are being acquired and developed by U.S. assets internationally. We're we're world-leading, and we're gobbling up all the best stuff. Why do you think that this is not accepted as market-leading, and that's a good thing? I mean, why do the people on the Hill push back against this?
1: You don't know what you've got till it's gone, you know. I mean, it's, it's one of those situations where where we have come to rely so much on this amazing biotech engine that we think it's infallible that you know nothing will nothing will destroy it. And yet those of us who've had the opportunities to work in other markets know how tenuous it actually is. You know that you don't get these kind of investment and in innovative ecosystems by accident. But you can destroy them overnight, and so you ask, how are the conversations on the hill going? Do people realize this, or, or are they hearing this? I, d- I don't think they are, and you know, the scarcity of moderates on on both sides is not making that any easier. Yeah. But we have to do everything we can to start exposing more and more of our representatives and our congresspeople to the amazing innovation that takes place in our small companies, because once they see it it's it's a different animal
0: but it's interesting because california in particular has had a huge influence on the biotech sector if you look at the numbers for example uh, the failure rate globally according to research by your fine organization bio shows that 92 percent of all assets fail but if you look at california over the last 10 years uh, 30 percent have made it to market california's had an extremely good hit rate yet a lot of the pressure Coming against pricing in the biotech sector is coming from California.
1: Well, I think we have to make sure as we start to see the cracks um, and the stresses and strains that that we point them out. So you mentioned California, which is my home state, and it's an incredible source of innovation. But they're seeing a lot of changes in their economic landscape. You know, the fact that um, highly skilled workers are increasingly working remotely. Right now it's temporarily, but it may become more permanent and they're able to move out of the very expensive state of California. Um, The fact that they're trying to encroach on tax credits that have fueled that innovative engine that may also chase some of our smaller companies out of the state, the fact that they're putting more and more burdens on these small companies as they try to be innovative and, and make that next great breakthrough. May mean that as we go into our recovery from COVID, which we will go through, you know, we will have a huge economic recovery that's needed, um, and that will occur. California may be slower to participate in it than states that have been more welcoming to innovators, and so you know, California is always an amazing nexus of people, but it, it's they have such a commitment. To thinking that there's no bottom to this well, <laughs> that they are really um, verging on changing that, that reputation and that, that ecosystem there.
0: I hear you. I'm a, f- I'm a fellow Californian, Angelino as well. And I don't get back much, but I have to say I was back uh, last month for work and uh, the Belgians had decided to put in a new quarantine. And so I had to extend my travel and I got stuck, stuck air quotes in Newport Beach for a week and uh, 78 degrees and sunny not a cloud in the sky you kind of see what the attraction is though too it is Mm -hmm. it is nice to get home but yeah there is an exodus right now of innovative business particularly to Austin as well as other places does the work that you're doing now also then need to extend to the state houses as well? Do you see that as part of your remit?
1: It, it does. And it has, yeah. you know, we've been, I've been speaking with governors over the last couple of weeks as well. I mean, governors are realizing that a lot of this is falling to them, that they can get in the race. And if they haven't built biotech hubs, they can figure out how to do it and build those hubs to help drive their, um, their recoveries. They know they need good relationships with biotech to, to get their hands on the solutions that are going to get us out of COVID, and so on many different fronts, the governors that haven't had the luxury of amazing biotech are realizing that it's it's something they can invest in. So, more to come, but uh, I think we'll see disparate outcomes depending on people's approach to biotechnology.
0: One final question for you, Michelle: mm-hmm. If you could change one thing immediately to try and improve the healthcare system as well as some of the regulatory challenges you're facing that we've been discussing in your new role as CEO of Bio. What would you like to change if you had a magic wand?
1: If I had a magic wand, it would be around healthcare disparities. I would like to see an end to our healthcare disparities, which takes many other changes as well. It means you know, more diversity within our companies. It means more representation in our clinical trials. It means a better understanding of what produces the disparities and outcomes to begin with. But I think that disparate outcomes, which we often talk about tracking with race, but I think almost as often tracks with class and with socioeconomic status. I think if we had more uniform outcomes and more uniform access to care, we wouldn't face the outcries and the misunderstanding of the industry that we face today. So I think it's critical for our industry to commit to trying to end health disparities and to work towards it um, because it is our future and so critically important to our mission.
0: Michelle McMurray-Heath, thank you very much for your time. It's been very enjoyable and I wish you all success.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.